up of the faithful heroes of the faith, and there are a bunch of them there. Almost all of them are men, and there are a couple of women who made it in there, but they're kind of dubious choices, like Sarah for getting pregnant when she's old. Okay, good for you. Um, <laughs> Rahab, a prostitute who got famous by lying. Um, other than that, it's mostly men. So today, what I want to, because in celebration of mothers and I am so thankful for all of the mothers who've been a part of my life and who from my grandmother and my mother and my mother-in-law who's almost 93 right now and still kicking and Anne, the mother of my kids and both of the mothers of my grandkids and so many other mothers who've touched my life in different ways. I'm grateful for them. So what I thought we would do today is I'm going to do a quick survey through scripture and I have to speed it up from first service where I went long, which meant it was hard for ladies to get their candy and pictures. So I'm going to mow through this, but I have the hall of faith of mothers. Instead of just, oh, all the great heroes of the faith, there are some incredible heroes of the faith in the scriptures. None of them look exactly like the Proverbs 31 woman, but each of them show distinct characteristics that make Mother special. So I'm going to very quickly mow through these 12 mother heroes of the faith in Scripture. The first one, and it's kind of funny that she doesn't make it into Hebrews 11. She's the first mother ever, Eve, the wife of Adam. You know, and think about um, Eve, who she was the, the only mother that didn't have a mother-in-law, which is a blessing maybe, but um, <laughs> she also didn't have a mother to teach her how to be a mother. She's just like, boom, here you are, you're there. Um, Eve was, she gets a bad rap. I mean, when you talk about Eve, it's like, oh, the serpent came, tricked her. She messed everything up for all of us. And we love seeing her that way. But the New Testament tells us that sin didn't enter the world through Eve. It entered the world through one man, Adam. So we have to look at Eve in kind of a special way, at least, to appreciate her. Now, yes, she listened to the serpent, but there are a couple of things about her that I admire, even as I recognize, you know, this was a problem. You know, when Paul talks about the reason why women aren't supposed to be leaders in the church, and he's pretty clear about that, and he points back at Eve and says that, you know, Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was, which shines a light on the idea that, okay, she was deceived, he knew what he was doing, that's why what he did is worse than what she did. What she did isn't considered to be really the first sin according to what the scriptures say. So when you read, and I was thinking about the narrative when she was tempted, um, first of all, everything that was drawing her was this great imagination of wanting things to be better, yes, in an unnatural way, yes, in an unrealistic way. Yeah, when she's hearing, it can be so great, the future can be so amazing, you, you can be as smart as God. She has this creative imagination that she actually believes that, that she's a sucker for somebody telling her that, oh, everything can be perfect. And 
yeah, that was, that was a weakness on her part. But at the same time, where would we be in life without the imagination of our mothers who think we can do more than we can, who see in us something that others don't see in us? Now, the other thing where, that really hit me as I was thinking about Eve is that as she was interacting with the serpent, remember, and a lot of times people even criticize her for this. Um, he goes, so God has said you can't eat of that, of, the, of all the trees of the garden. She's like, no, just the one tree. And she goes, we aren't even allowed to touch it. Now, God never said that. Where did she get that idea? And what you have to understand is Eve was the first legalist. She was the first person who thought, I am going to be so careful that I'm going to draw lines that are even more rigid than what God did just to be safe. And that's that part of, you know, mothers are so good at being legalistic sometimes, where it's like, no, I don't even want you to go near that. I don't even want you to go in the kitchen at all. I don't want you to forget dating. I don't want you to know a boy's name until you're 40. And it's like, try to be careful. And you have to love and appreciate that while at the same time realizing that legalism ever since then has followed that same path. Whether it's the Pharisees or whoever it is, it's like, I want so badly to get it right that I'm gonna make rules that are even stricter. And what happens, those rules can't hold up because is it logical that you can't even touch the fruit? Of course not. God hadn't said that. But I'm gonna be stricter than God. Sometimes a mom just does that. But you know, remember, it's Eve who God says, after she had sinned, God told her, your seed is going to rescue humanity. You're gonna have a seed, a child will come from you, and that child will ultimately, though his heel will be bruised by the serpent, he will crush the head of the serpent. God didn't say, Adam, someday you're gonna have a son, and your son's gonna smash the devil. He said, Eve, someday your seed will destroy everything that's been destroying this planet. Everything that will become the bane of our existence, it's going to be you. When she had her first kid, Cain, and things didn't go exactly the way she wanted to when her, her first son killed her second son, but when she had him, she thought, this is it. She's so optimistic that it's like, Cain is going to be the one. And so, and she, she made the statement, she goes, you know, in the, in the scriptures where, and the way it's worked, you know, the way that it's translated for us, she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord in chapter four, verse one. But in the Hebrew, what that means, for one thing, acquired just means to make in Hebrew. She goes, I made a man just like God did, is basically what she said. She's like, look at me. I made this. I mean, there's something uniquely motherly about that sense because that child comes straight out of you. Men make a contribution a long time ago and, and making, a, making a person was the last thing we had in our minds at the time. And then the woman has this child developing within her and that baby is born 
And we're like, whoa, but the, the mother is like, oh, that's a part of me, but it's something so much more than this. I did this. And I love that about Eve, that she has that sense that, look, what's coming from me is going to change the world. What's coming from me is going to be really special. And because she had this idea, and then later after the fiasco, um, she had another son, Seth. And God, she said, God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. She's like, here's another chance. And Seth was the first one who, as he began to grow, it says, then people began to call on the name of the Lord. That came from her. So for me, if you're going to have a mother's hall of faith in the Bible, let's just put Eve, the mother of us all, right up there at the top. So that's one. <laughs> Our second one is, it might surprise you, um, because, uh, well, in Genesis chapter 16, we're seeing the story of Sarah. And Sarah ends up having a kid when she's an old lady. And, you know, an angel tells Adam, hey, or tells Abraham, she's going to have a baby. He's like, come on. She's laughing when she hears it. Somehow she gets her name in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 because of it. But there's somebody else who's a part of the story that to me is fascinating. And that's Hagar. Because the angel of the Lord came to Hagar. She had been a slave. And they had this tradition that, okay, if the wife can't get pregnant, if she has a slave who then can have relations with your husband and she gets pregnant, then if I'm there to catch the baby when it comes out, it's my baby and I'm like a mom. It was this weird uh, kind of thing that they did. So she does it with Hagar and then she got jealous of Hagar. Hagar's just doing what a slave woman has to do. She's doing what they told her. Now she has this child Ishmael and Sarah begins to resent her. And the angel of the Lord came to her and said, submit yourself. He said, I am going to multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, you're with child, you'll bear a son, you'll call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He'll be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. Obviously Ishmael's you know, they're looking to his descendants as being the Arabic people, which are a massive number of people that came from Ishmael. And he'll dwell in the presence of all his brethren. You follow the story through. And finally, after Sarah has, you know, Isaac, then she begins to, she, she begins to resent and to hate um, Ishmael and Hagar. And so as a result, if you go over to chapter 21... She, Hagar gets run out of town and she runs off and, and tells Abraham, get rid of him, and he does. But then, you know, God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of him as well because he's your seed. So he gave him some bread and, and water and sent him off. She's out there in the desert. The water's used up. Hagar's feeling like, what am I going to do? And God heard this little Arab kid, Hagar, um, Ishmael, heard him and said, the angel of the Lord called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, 
For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then all of a sudden she saw a well of water and she filled her skin with water and gave him a drink and he started doing fine. And they lived there in the wilderness of Paran and he ended up growing up and getting married and propagating just like God said. Now, why we don't celebrate Hagar so much, I don't really understand. She did what she, the only thing she could do. And it, think about this. You have Sarah, you have Hagar. In fact, you have Abraham. You understand that when you read the scriptures, God spoke more personally to Hagar by far than he did to Sarah. She didn't have anything else. She's out in the wilderness. She's going along with what she couldn't control. Now she's a single mom and she's just trying to survive. She just wants her little boy to live. And God meets them in the wilderness. And everything that happened since, all of those descendants that came through him are God's fulfilling his promise to Hagar for her faithfulness. And sure, we don't make her a big hero. Maybe we should, you know, because God put a lot of attention on her. She wasn't Sarah, but she was something great in her own right and had, a, had more of a connection with God than Sarah did from what we see in the scriptures. Although people would look down on her, she knew the scorn, she knew the rejection, she lived in the wilderness, the stigma of a single mom. But she heard from God and she loved her boy. And to me, that's something worth celebrating for sure. The next uh, you know, member of my hall of faith will skip over to the book of Ruth, where you remember the story of Ruth. Um, she was married, her husband died, and she ends up with her mother-in-law. Now, that might be somebody's worst nightmare, but for her, it was an incredible blessing because she was a Moabitess. Her culture was really cursed by God, but now here she is, with Naomi, and Naomi is taking her in like a daughter. Naomi struggled severely with depression. People joked and said, man, I remember when you were young, you were so cheerful, that's why you got the name, which means cheerful. Now you look like you're a mess. But she acted as a mother for Ruth. And she ended up, you remember the story, she took her in, she coached her, she taught her about Judaism. She ended up setting Ruth up with her eventual husband, Boaz, told her all the cultural things and plugged her in and helped her. And man, it, it, you know, what an amazing mother-in-law she was. And so I'm putting her in the Hall of Faith. Ruth gets enough credit, fine. She doesn't need to be in this Hall of Faith of moms. Sometimes the Hall of Faith mom is a mother-in-law who, by the way, ends up after all of this, it's, it's you know, Ruth's, Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David, the greatest of all in Israel. That doesn't happen without a mother-in-law who was being faithful. And so she's my next inductee. And then over in 1 Samuel, the next one that I'm throwing in there is Hannah. She was a gal who, you know, she didn't have any kids, and she really wanted a kid. She's begging God for a kid. Her husband's got kids from other wives, and so he's like, what's your problem? 
Like, you want a, you want a baby? Come on, you have me, baby. <laughs> she's like, seriously? You think that's the same thing? And she's like, nobody gets it. She goes to the tabernacle, and she's crying and begging God, and the priest who's there, Eli, thinks she's drunk. Totally doesn't understand her at all. But then God hears her and speaks to her and says, I'm going to give you a son. And she goes, if you give me a son, then I am going to dedicate him to the Lord from the beginning. And that son was Samuel. And we would look at Hannah and go like, how responsible is it? that you've got this little boy that you finally wanted. And the truth is, things at the tabernacle are a mess. Eli's clueless. His son's dirtbags. You're going to take your little precious boy and let them kind of raise him, and you just drop in and visit and keep an eye on him once in a while? Yeah, she's amazing that she would do that, keep that commitment. And here's the thing, maybe we wouldn't say, hey, you should dedicate your kids and we're not soliciting for you to send your kids to us, certainly. But at the same time, what does it mean when nobody really understood? You wanted that child so bad and yet you're offering that child back to God. And the truth is, that's what every mom has to do. Moms who don't do this don't ever get anywhere. Their kids become stifled because at some point, and the time goes by so fast, but at some point, your kids get to be a certain age and now you have to go, okay, God, I'm gonna trust them to you because I can't do anything with them. So Hannah's somebody who understood that right off the bat and goes, I'm gonna trust God with the life of this precious child of mine. And we never see that, it's not like, you know, that she and her husband were always coming and checking up on him. No, she was the mom, and she was doing that. And I, I so appreciate her for that. Hannah, we, we sometimes will bag on her, but it's like she did what every mom ultimately has to do. I want a child. For any mom, especially nowadays, for somebody to have a child, they want that child. But then to say, and I'm receiving them as a gift from God, and I'm offering them back to God. That's so incredible. So I'm putting her in my hall of faith for sure. Now my next one, and you might have seen this coming if you've been with us going through 2 Samuel. I just love this woman in 2 Samuel chapter 20. This, we don't really have her name, but she's from a town called Abel. Now to remind you, Israel was going through another revolution. And there was a guy, Sheba, who was trying to rally the 10 northern tribes to go against David. David had just endured his own son trying to destroy him. Now he's got this Sheba. And finally, he has this bad general that he like freaks out by. But at the same time, he's really good at killing people. Joab chases Sheba to go to the city of Abel. And there's a woman who apparently is like the governor of the city. Abel was a great city, but it was a peaceful city. It was a place where people would go to resolve their issues. It was kind of like, you know, when people are fighting in court and they go, let's go to arbitration. Abel was known for that. But Joab comes with all of these soldiers 
and they, they put a siege around the city, and their plan is, we're going to destroy this city, we're going to kill everyone in it, and I know that Sheba's in there, and he's dying too. And along comes a mom, <laughs> and I love her. And I, it's funny, after first service, I had more moms come and say, that's me, I'm that mom, <laughs> than of any of the other moms. But she goes, let me talk to Joab. She knew, he was the guy that's really running things. So Joab comes and goes, yes, ma'am. She goes, look, I know you're trying to destroy this city to kill this guy. She goes, I'm a mom. I love that, that she leveraged the fact that, excuse me, you're killing my city and I'm a mom. Would you treat a mom like that? And he's like, no, no, I don't want to kill any moms. I just want that guy. And she goes, wait right here. And she goes into the city and then she tosses the guy's head over the fence. There you go. He's like, oh, Sheba, you've never looked better. And she saved the city. And she's a mom. And there, not every mom is this way. I don't want to lay a trip on you that you should be ready to cut somebody's head off to save your family or your city or whatever. But every once in a while, you need somebody like this. And there are some moms I know that are this. And there are some that aren't. It's okay. Again, we're not Proverbs 31 women. We're a little of this and a little of that. This lady's getting in my hall of fame. I love that she goes, I'm a mom? Wait right here. (laughs) (laughs) And so she got in my hall of faith. Now, my next one's in 1 Kings chapter 1. We're going through 2 Samuel. We're almost to the end of it. We just have a couple more messages. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, as things are wrapping up, David's ready to die. And he's had a good long life. And, but his wife Bathsheba is, comes along and has a significant role here in chapter 1 of 1 Kings. We know Bathsheba as, I mean, she gets kind of a bad rap. People are like, oh, Bathsheba. She's the floozy that was out there taking a bath on the roof and pulled David into sin and then her husband gets killed because of it. And a lot of times we don't have a great feeling about Bathsheba. She's heroic to me. I mean, the whole thing with David, she had no choice, let's face it. But now at this point, he's lying there on his deathbed. He's like in and out of consciousness. They throw a young girl in bed with him to try to warm him up and it's like, no... It's not doing anything. And so in chapter 1 of 1 Kings, Bathsheba comes to him, and she realizes David had a bunch of kids. David had a bunch of kids from a bunch of different wives. She has Solomon. And she knew that Solomon was supposed to take over after David. And there had been some prophecies that seemed to indicate that, but now David's like out of it. And David has a son, Adonijah, who's just declared himself to be king. And Joab goes with him. Some, other, some of the priests did. So she's like, I've got to protect my little boy. He's been through a lot. People resent him because he's my son. And so she gets this whole plan. And she gets Nathan, who was the guy with the most integrity in the country, the one who had confronted David on his sin with Bathsheba and and his killing her husband Uriah as well. And she goes, look, here's what we're going to do. So she goes into David. Hey, honey, how you doing? Let me check your temperature. And she's like, hey, you know, remember when you said that 
that Solomon would be the next king. David's like staring into space. He, he doesn't know. And she, but she knew that he's like not in any state to remember something like that. And so then she goes, oh, look, here comes Nathan. Nathan comes in. Hey, Nathan. He's like, yeah, yeah. Remember you said, and David, yep, yep, I said it. And Solomon's going to be king. And it was that moment that made that fulfillment of the prophecy by everything that God had said he was going to do for Israel. The nation was saved because Bathsheba went to work. She wasn't just some bimbo. She went to specifically get Nathan involved with it, rescue the kingdom, because under Adonijah, there's no way that kingdom could have survived. Under Solomon, it became its greatest country that it ever was, and they built the temple. I mean, so much happened because this gal, who other people looked at her and like, I don't know, she's kind of sleazy, and I don't trust her, and she's younger than the other wives, and it's like, she had a lot of charm, but man, when it came down to it, she gets in my hall of faith for rescuing that which God had prophesied that David probably couldn't even remember at that point. So I honor Bathsheba in this moment. Now, a couple chapters later in 1 Kings 3, another woman, we don't even have her name, but she inspires me and she gets in my hall of fame for mothers as well. Solomon had become king and they're giving some of the stories of things he did that showed how wise he was. And one of them involves this woman. And actually in chapter three, beginning with verse 16, um, there were two ladies who came to court for arbitration. They would come to Solomon and have him solve the tough problems. So these two gals come in and they're like, hey, we're roommates. We each had a child about the same time. They both look kind of alike, bald, fat. And, and one of us rolled over on her baby and it died. But I say it's her baby and she says it's my baby. So it's like, what, what are you gonna do, run a DNA test? How can you tell who the real mom is? And Solomon has this brilliant plan. He says, okay, cut the baby in half. And the one woman whose baby had already died, she's like, sounds good to me. The other woman said, no, let her have the baby. And he goes, ha, that's your baby. Here, you take the baby. And that was like, I fell for it. I can't believe I was so stupid. But that woman gets in my Hall of Fame because she did what a lot of mothers sometimes have to do. What are you willing to risk? What are you willing to even give up? Can you let go and trust God with your child? Are you going to suffocate them and hold them to yourself and insist and fight or let them get pulled apart by some disagreement that you have with somebody else? It's like this sacrificial, amazing woman who shows us, yeah, that's, man, that's a mom. Again, we could go, yeah, well, where were the fathers and why was she living with a woman like, no, she gets in the Hall of Fame because she got in the scriptures for having the kind of love for her child that she would release her child, sort of like Hannah, but in a totally different way. And she got her child back as a result, and I love that. Then over in 1 Kings chapter 17, we see another woman who is really, um, she isn't named. She is 
Uh, she, she's called a widow from Zarephath. Elijah was out. You know, he had prophesied that it wasn't going to rain, and it didn't. So times were really tough. But God sent him and said, go to Zarephath, which belongs in Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. And you can read the 17th chapter. He goes to her and says, hey, can you cook me something to eat? I could use like a biscuit or something. And she goes, it's just me and my son. Notice how many of these are single moms. It's amazing. It's just me and my son, and we have enough oil and flour to make one more little cake, and then we're going to eat and die. And he goes, well, will you share it with me? (laughs) And she says, yes. That just blows my mind. That they know it's their last meal, and they'll share it with a stranger, They'll share it with a man of God without really understanding who he is. And amazingly, God rewarded that widow of Zarephath. And for the next three years, as Elijah stays there, the the flour and the oil continue to be just supernaturally magnified. And they're the only three people that are eaten during this time. Everyone else is scrounging to find something that they can eat on. God provided for them. I mean, and what do you think about this kid? You know, later on, the kid ends up actually dying or almost dying. And, and uh, she like blames Elijah. Thanks a lot, man of God. And so he goes, look, he carried the kid up into the upper room and he said, oh, Lord God, Have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out over the kid for three times and called upon the Lord, and the kid was healed. He came back to life, and then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Man, amazing. How many times... It, you'll, it's easy to share with people when you have plenty, but what if it's just you and your kids and there's nothing left? Do you understand how much you show your kids when even at that you have generosity? There are people who have tons of stuff that are too greedy to share with anyone. Um, you know, there are a lot of studies that have shown the people that contribute per capita by far the most to others, charities, and to ministries and things like that aren't the people that have the most. It's so often the people who have the least. It's why I hate when people get on there and pitch, you know, trying to twist people's arms to give money for their ministry so that they can fly in their private jets and whatever. And I'm like, that's the lowest. That's like taking advantage of somebody like this. But a mom who's generous and shows her kid, when we don't have anything left, but we will share what we have. Oh man, that for me is so incredibly inspiring. Well, the next woman that gets in my hall of faith is a lady named Mary in Luke chapter one. And we don't have time, but you know the story. She is a teenage girl. Now, I would probably also put her in with Elizabeth, who was probably her cousin. Elizabeth's an old lady, and God comes and speaks to her angel, Gabriel, and you're going to have a baby, and she believes. And then Mary comes along, and Mary is a teenage 
virgin, and God says, you're going to have a baby, and she believes, and the two of them connect, and it's just an amazing thing where Elizabeth's son, John the Baptist, is the one who will end up introducing Jesus when he started his ministry. So it's just a cool story, but I just, I look at Mary and go, how she did not get in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, I don't know, so I'm putting her in mine. Sheesh. She's a little girl, and she says to the Lord, hey, whatever you have for me, whatever you're going to do, do it. Boy, what an what a amazing woman that is. So she gets in my hall of faith in, in slot number nine. <laughs> and uh, so then uh, my, next, my next inductee is... Uh, Number 10 is someone in uh, Acts chapter 16. And so I'll flip over there really quick. And Paul is going along, he and Silas, in a, uh, um, on a missions trip. And they come to Philippi, which is in Greece. And it was a pretty remote area. They came to Philippi and... They go to this city. It was an important city, but it wasn't Christian at all. And they meet this woman, Lydia. And she is a seller of purple. Now, purple was a luxury item. A lot of people would, would judge you if you were busy selling something so frivolous. It would, I don't know what would be the equivalent today, but you're selling a product that nobody needs but you're selling it because it's providing for your family. And so she's doing that. She's with the other women. Paul comes and preaches the gospel to her, and she not only responds, but it says she was baptized with her whole family. That's a woman who's a leader who goes, you know what? We're getting baptized. Well, what, what, we don't understand. That's okay. Shut up and get in line. This is what we're doing. Lydia's a woman who is amazing that way. Now, later, Paul and Silas ended up going to jail, and God lets them out of jail, and the church in Philippi started probably at Lydia's house. She was involved with the church that became the greatest church that, um, that anyone ever addressed in the New Testament. Paul said they were his favorite church. They were the only church that was supporting him. All that comes back to a working mom who said, I'm following Jesus, get in line. You guys are too, and I, I love that. Then in Romans 16, the end of Paul's maybe greatest epistle, he just mentions someone who, to me, gets in the hall of faith because of that, and it doesn't even give her name. In verse 13 of Romans 16, he says, Greet Rufus. We don't even know who Rufus is. Um, we do know that Simon the Cyrene, who helped Jesus carry his cross, had a son named Rufus who was involved in the church, so maybe same Rufus, it would fit. But greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. And see, just that little, okay, Rufus and his mom, and Rufus's mom is my mom too. Some people go, oh, were they brothers? Not really. But Rufus's mom was the kind of mom that would become a mom to you if you didn't have a mom around, if you didn't have a mom who was handy. And I'm not just thankful for mothers. I'm thankful for women that'll go, I'll be your mom. Right now, you need a mom, and I will do that. And that's why 
I like her. We don't have her name, but as far as I'm concerned, she's amazing and is worthy of our Hall of Faith. And then finally in 2 Timothy, um, the first chapter, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's so proud of Timothy. He's growing up, becoming a pastor. He said, I thank God whom I serve with pure conscience as my forefathers did without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith, genuine faith, I love that phrase, that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded it's in you also. So I'm putting... Lois and Eunice, into my mother's hall of faith because that involves really the idea of a heritage, a lineage. It's like, okay, here's someone who's godly. Who was behind that? Who was behind that person? And some of us may look at our moms and then look at our grandmas and our great-grandmas and goes, somehow we got where we are because there was a heritage because there were, there were godly women who would be that example to someone else who could pass it on to someone else. And so for me, I love these gals and I put them in my hall of faith as well. And so that's my hall of faith of moms today. And <laughs> let's pray. God, we truly do want to honor moms and and not expecting them to be perfect because none of them are. And yet each of them in different ways. Some of them just showed us with their generosity by their willingness to go out of the way to help someone else even when they didn't have a lot themselves. Some of them were tough and scared us and people didn't mess with them. Some of them just had such a heart for you and committed their children to you. Some of them just became a mom to us when we needed a mom. In all of these different ways, these godly examples, we thank you for them. I thank you for every mom that's represented here, not only the ones who are here, but the ones who put us here, the ones who pushed us here, the ones who led us here. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.